You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine. Thanks for dropping in. My guest today is a very accomplished woman, Jennifer Margulis. Marvelous Margulis. I did it right. <laughs> Jennifer Margulis, PhD, is an award-winning science journalist and author. Jennifer is a meticulous researcher who's not afraid to be controversial. She is passionate about investigating the overlooked dangers of mainstream practices, especially when scientific evidence has been brushed aside in favor of special interests. Uncovering these issues is a matter of social justice. Through her writing, she champions the rights of society's most vulnerable, children, mothers, the working poor, older adults, and others on the social or economic margins. Jennifer's CV is very impressive, and I will let you read more about her accomplishments on the podcast website or her website, jennifermargulis.net. She has written many books, but I would like to point out two books that she has co-authored, The Addiction Spectrum, A Compassionate Holistic Approach to Recovery, and The Vaccine-Friendly Plan with Dr. Paul's Safe and Effective Approach to Immunity and Health from Pregnancy Through Your Teen Years. These are both co-written with Dr. Paul Thomas, who is an integrative pediatrician and addiction specialist with over 15,000 children in his private practice in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, I'm very excited about this because um, you really have, you have such a wide breadth and depth of knowledge, and I, I really want to uh, how shall I say it? Pick your mind apart. <laughs> you know, I thought of the title critical thinking for our podcast because <sighs> right now I think critical thinking is so important. Everybody says they have the facts. Some people do and some people don't. You know, it's like, how do we tell? How do we know what is truth and what isn't? When some experts are telling us one thing and other experts are telling us something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, critical thinking is at an all-time low these days, Janine. I think most people are thinking with their amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's involved in fight or flight and anxiety. And very few people are using their prefrontal cortex to think and to actually analyze and look at the data and make healthy decisions. Mm -hmm. It's actually pretty disturbing. So it's a very timely topic. Right. I agree. So I'd like to start out with, though, how did you become interested in this, this line of uh, inquiry or work? Well, so how did I become an investigative journalist who yes. focuses on health? Yeah. Yes. Um, so it, it all started when I was in graduate school. I went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and I fell in love and was having my first child. And I'd been very excited to have a baby. And every time I went to the doctor, I ended up feeling bad. I mean, my husband wow. and I would sit in the parking lot and I would cry after every appointment. Oh my goodness. How come? And what I, yeah. Well, what I didn't understand was I was healthy. I was young. I had had a lot of morning sickness in the first, um, actually for the first six months of my pregnancy. Ooh. I felt like being pregnant was an absolutely wonderful, miraculous and exciting time. And my doctors, um, 
And even the hospital midwives made it out like I was just an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> and, you know, every appointment I was being shamed and um, patronized and talked down to. And it really took um, it took a long time after that. It didn't happen overnight, but I I, I didn't understand where all that negativity was coming from. And I, and I had a really difficult birth with my oldest who was born in the hospital. Mm. And then I started researching. I, you know, a few days after she was born, my insurance denied um, the claim and said that my pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. And even though I'd had the same health insurance for four years of graduate school, <laughs> And we had made the decision to have a baby in the hospital because I was in Atlanta. I had been told that home birth was illegal. That wasn't really true, but it was before the internet and I didn't sort of know where to start researching. And my husband especially felt so much more comfortable having a baby in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we had made these decisions based on money, you know, because we didn't feel like we could afford to pay out of pocket for a midwife and because we didn't really know that much about home birth. And it was when after that, that claim was denied, which we fought back. And of course they ended up covering the birth. And when I looked at what had happened during my birth and realized that every time there was an intervention, all of these things that I hadn't wanted, Janine, mm -hmm. every single intervention came with a huge cost. You know, the markup, it depends on the hospital, but there is a markup of 6,000% for one Tylenol. Oh my and, God. You know, I mean, I yes. know there's a big markup, but 6,000%, everybody, you know, take that in 6,000%. Yeah. And horrible. I mean, so, so I realized that there was sort of a basic conflict of interest, which was, I had said that I hadn't wanted, you know, an epidural. I hadn't wanted a medicated birth. And I ended up of course, or not of course, but very unfortunately getting an epidural. And then that was an incredible um, boon to the hospital because they added a huge markup on the bill. And I was scrutinizing this bill because I was, you know, nursing this tiny little baby who I was so glad to have, but I had felt like such a failure. I felt like my body hadn't really worked right. And I started realizing that there was this systematic problem going on in American hospitals. I, I learned then that our maternal mortality rates are very high. I mean, actually, we have one of the worst maternal mortality rates of the entire industrialized world. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I don't know if the listeners realize that, but I, I know we are, our morta infant mortality rate is outrageous. Yeah, our infant mortality rate is also ignominiously high among industrialized countries. I mean, it's it's really, we do much worse by our moms than we do by our infants. And there's mm. reasons for that that, are, that you can explain if you start looking at the bias in the healthcare system and you look at compensation. But, but the truth is, is that across the board in the United States, we, we spend more per capita than any country in the industrialized world. And we have among the worst health outcomes so, you know, as a researcher, because I was doing a PhD at Emory University in English and American studies, and as someone who loved to take deep dives into difficult material, mm -hmm. I started taking a really deep dive into our healthcare system. And that was how I came to understand that so many of the things that happened to me that felt so personal and felt like a, a failure, a personal failing, actually mm -hmm. were a systemic problem that needed to be addressed. You know, I don't know. Everybody is so stressed uh, these days. Uh, life is, 
you know, hard. Most families, uh, the mother and the father both have to work. People are tired. I don't like to think that it's laziness that people don't do more research, but I think it's more that, you know, there's only so much energy and it's easier to listen to, you know, mainstream media than it is to, like you, dive deep into a topic and and learn more about what's going on, get more available information. And it's so much easier now with the internet. I mean, there's the the plus and the minus is there's a lot of misinformation on the internet too, but there's also a much easier access to good information. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it, it's true that I think as humans, we want authority figures. We, you know, mm-hmm. talking today to a mom who had a son who every time she took him to the doctor, he would spike a 107 degree fever. Oh, oh my and, gosh. I mean, I know 107 degrees is almost unheard of. And it's so dangerous, so dangerous. Uh, fever in general is not dangerous. It's something else we could talk about. But mm-hmm. having a high fever like that in a very small child is very dangerous. And she would, in distress, she would call the doctor and the doctor would say, oh, it's fine. It's normal. There's nothing to worry about. And it took this poor mom so many years. And in fact, both of her sons ended up with really problematic chronic illnesses before she realized that it wasn't random that the the decline in her children's health came after she went to the doctor. And, you know, but years and years, and these are incredibly smart people. And, you know, what was happening there, which is what happens to a lot of us, is that we have to trust someone. Right. We trust our doctor. And it almost becomes something called Stockholm syndrome, Mm -hmm. where you begin to identify with your kidnappers, right? I mean, you don't realize, you never think of a doctor as a kidnapper. You think of a doctor as this wonderful, benevolent, kind, almost godlike figure. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I was so mistreated during that hospital birth. It was very both physically and emotionally abusive. And I I knew that. I, I could feel it while it was happening. But at the same time, I left the hospital with this brand new baby and I told myself, oh, thank God I was in the hospital. If I hadn't been in the hospital, my baby might have died. Mm -hmm. And it really Mm -hmm. took many, many months of, you know, research and using my critical thinking skills to realize that actually, you know, the things that went wrong during that birth were went wrong because I was in the hospital and because I was in a system that denigrates women, that believes that birth is an emergency, no matter what and is putting their own liability concerns and their own profit margins always in front of the health and well-being of the babies and the moms. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Jennifer, it's my understanding that a lot of the hospitals now, they get a pretty sizable uh, fee if someone is diagnosed as, uh, I guess I'll say the word, covid um, <laughs> to say the word. <laughs> I know, I know, my God. But that that um, that they get, you know, thousands of dollars for that diagnosis, whether it's correct or not. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's really difficult to piece apart in this in our society, which is very different from other countries, is that 
you know, one thing can be happening. You can have two medical establishments literally across the street from each other, and they can be using some of the same insurance companies and they can have completely different reimbursement. So it's very hard to make generalizations about the system, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just made a generalization. I think it was, I think it's factually correct and I can, (laughs) I can argue it. Um, but it's, it's very difficult because things aren't standardized. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, there is there's no question that we are overcounting coronavirus cases and we're overcounting coronavirus, especially coronavirus deaths. So right here in the Rogue Valley, I live in southern Oregon, close to California. We had a, a woman, um, a young woman in her 30s pass away. Mm-hmm. And she had been, she was actually, um, in Oregon, we have the right to end your life. Right. If you're, mm-hmm. if you have six months or fewer to live and you can get two doctors to sign off on it, it's actually very difficult, but we do have the right to die. Okay. Um, and she had invoked that and she passed away from a long-term terminal illness and, she had tested positive somewhere along the line for coronavirus. They are counting that as a coronavirus death. <sighs> God, that is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's, and it's, I I said earlier that people are thinking with their amygdala, you know, the, the media, the news media is, is complicit in this. And what happens is that, you know, we get the the scary sounding music and you can feel your pulse Mm -hmm. quicken. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hear this kind of sensational stuff. And of course, if you hear that a 30 something woman died of coronavirus, you start to get scared. I mean, you should, right? Mm -hmm. What you don't hear is that that was a woman who was already terminally ill. And, you know, we've seen people dying of gunshot wounds, falling off a ladder of cancer, of complications due to diabetes, um, of old age, you know, 95, 97, 98 year olds. And every single one of those deaths is now being counted as a coronavirus death. That's not to say that coronavirus can't be extremely problematic for some people. It absolutely can. And that's not to say that there haven't been many, many deaths from coronavirus. But the the way that we are tabulating these deaths and the way that we're scaring the general public is, you know, is so sensational and such a misstep in terms of the real ways that we can stay safe and healthy and, you know, free from infection. And nobody's talking about that. They're just kind of using a fear-based model and fear-mongering. And, you know, and the truth is our sick care system benefits. The more people are sick, the more people have debilitating chronic illnesses, the more times you go to the doctor, the more people in America profit. It's, it's so problematic, Janine. It's just everyone needs to start thinking much more critically and stop believing the mainstream narrative. Mm-hmm. I agree, Jennifer. And like for right now, this winter, where'd the flu go? Where'd colds go? Nobody has the cold or flu because it's all being rolled into COVID. Yes. It's it's like, oh, I guess the flu and and colds just disappeared this winter. (laughs) Well, the other thing is that, you know, people are, are, are effectively being terrified. And so they're afraid when they do actually have a flu, Uh, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of people, when they get sick, people who follow the mainstream, the first thing they do is they go to their doctor or they go right to urgent care. But now people are afraid to to go to the doctor. They're afraid to go Mm -hmm. to urgent care. And so even if they do have the flu, they're not going to get counted. (laughs) I mean, it's either going to be counted as coronavirus or it's not going to even be a blip on the radar because people 
aren't going in unless it's, you know, incredibly extreme and they're mm -hmm. waiting until the last minute. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of astounding to me. This is such an interesting question about where, where is the flu? Yeah. <laughs> you can't, can't, and, and, you know, it was a very convenient narrative on the part of the CDC to overblow the flu and, you know, to really overstate the dangers of the flu and how many people die from the flu. And as your listeners and you probably know, we used to lump in any deaths from pneumonia or from ILIs, that's influenza-like illnesses, we counted as flu deaths so that we could elevate those numbers. And part of the reason for that is that we were working really hard to scare the general public into getting flu vaccines. Um, and, you know, there isn't, there's no public will right now. I mean, there, there, there actually is, but there's much less of a public campaign to get people vaccinated against the flu because everybody is concerned and talking about coronavirus and the coronavirus vaccine. So, you know, in order to not, because that propaganda is not being pushed on us, all of a sudden we no longer have to worry about the flu, about influenza-like illnesses, or even about pneumonia, which of course is all completely ridiculous. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the reality of a public health system, you know, that's really not about health and wellness, but is really about, unfortunately, corporate profits and, you know, shareholder gains and sick care. So what do we do, Jennifer? How do we, you know, how do we, how do we wade through this morass of information that, I mean, I find it really fascinating that um, over and over again, I, I will read or uh, hear in mainstream media, the, uh, the call them journalists or wh whoever they are, they're using the same phrases over and over. It's like everybody uses the same phrase. And when I hear that, I think something's up here. <laughs> Absolutely. Because those journalists aren't actually doing the research and the writing themselves. They're not taking the time to talk to families and to interview doctors who they find on their own. What they're doing is they're lifting, they're actually cutting and pasting, Janine, from um, you know public relations, from PR campaigns. So a lot of the news that is, quote, written is actually written through um, press releases. And you know the, the, most people don't understand this because if you're not a journalist, you don't know how it works on the inside. But journalists are incredibly busy. I like to believe, and I think it's true, I know a lot of journalists, that they're, you know, that they are well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. But what happens is how do they decide what is, quote, news and what isn't? And mm. often that comes in the form of press releases. And, you know, the companies that have the most sophisticated public relations campaigns and public relations firms behind them are the ones who get the most play. So it often, as a as a science journalist, and the book that I have coming out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt is a book actually about biology and about um, the importance of bacteria and life on Earth and how it formed and how we cohabitate with many, many, many different kinds of bacteria. Oh, cool. um, and so I've been, you know, so I spend a lot of time reading a lot of original science and I find it fascinating. And, you know, I always wonder, well, why is it that, you know, something really seminal can be published by an incredible team of scientists and it doesn't even get a blip? Um, we don't hear about it on Science Friday. We don't read about it in any of the newspapers and we don't, you know, we don't see it on the websites. And then 
And then, and then an art, a science um, article, you know, a, a peer-reviewed article that really has a, a really low number of participants or doesn't have really interesting results, but it gets a huge amount of play, you know, and I'm mm -hmm. always wondering about how that works. And the truth is, it's, it's the scientists who are working with sophisticated public relations firms mm -hmm. that are the ones whose work gets into the mainstream media, which should make everybody pause. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you asked the question, so what do we do about it? <laughs> and I, you know, I think that there are a couple of very clear things that we can do. And, you know, one of them is that is that you should not let your consumption of the news and the media be um, be mediated by social media or by Google. So I would encourage everyone to stop using Google because Google is a search engine that is censoring alternative health information. Mm -hmm. And I have been using DuckDuckGo. I'm sure mm -hmm. there's other good ones to use. Um, and then the other thing is that you shouldn't be getting your news. And I know a lot of us do this, but you shouldn't be getting your news just from what social media outlets are suggesting that you get your news from because they're engaged in a huge amount of active censorship. So even though Twitter and Facebook are wonderful places to go that, you know, conglomerate news, it's much better what I think to do is if you're going to be looking at the news and reading, especially the science news, is to really look at a variety of sources. So so instead of going to Google or Facebook, what you do is you you look at National Public Radio and then you look at the BBC, that's the British mm -hmm. Broadcasting, right? Mm -hmm. And then you also look at Fox News. Mm -hmm. And so now you're getting three totally different, you know, all biased in their own way. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you can start to piece together with your own critical thinking skills. If you look at how NPR, Fox News and the BBC are covering a certain topic, you're actually going to start getting real information by putting those three together and then drawing your own conclusions. And then the other thing to do, Janine, is to actually, <laughs> I'm going to contradict myself here, but um, <laughs> is to shut off the radio, mm -hmm. shut off the TV, turn mm -hmm. off the internet and, you know, close down your computer and, and start actually having real conversations in real time with real people. Listen to podcasts like yours, go mm -hmm. to the complete alternative media, you know, so Either you're not you're not what listening or taking in anything from the mainstream, but actually looking at some of the you know people that we would call quote outliers. Often you're going to get the most reliable information mm -hmm. from those sources. Yep. And when you do, you know, check the references. I mean, you might not be geeky enough to want to do that, but maybe the people who are listening are. But you know, when somebody says something really interesting about a scientific study, go back and read the science. Um, the wonderful thing about the internet is that it's all open to us now, and so. Things that were very hard to access if you didn't have, you know, access to a public, um, to a private university's library, mm -hmm. not behind a paywall. And so it's very wonderful to be able to actually print out. I, I would tell people, grab a nice cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea <laughs> or a <laughs> beverage of your choice. Sit down with that, print out, you know, an article and take a highlighter pen and, and read it carefully and think about it and then take it to somebody who you like to talk to and say, wow, I just read this article. Let me, let me run this by you. What do you think? And, you know, then you're actually having a real dialogue in real time with a real person, which is something we don't do enough of these right. days. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're also engaged.
engaging with the article itself, not just with the abstract. So you're actually looking at the article and, and people might shake their heads and say, well, wait, I'm not a scientist. I can't do that. Well, you can do anything you're interested in. Anything you're curious about is fair game. If you don't want to, I get it. But if you feel like you're not quote adequate, you absolutely are. You, you know, you, you sit down with your highlighter and your beverage and you just work on it and it's exciting. It makes, you can feel your neurons firing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can feel mm -hmm. your brain expanding and then, you know, talk to someone, talk to the smartest person, you know, about that article and then come to your own conclusions. And when you actually take the time to do that, you know, you, you learn so much and you grow so much and the world is such a more interesting place because it's so much more nuanced when you're thinking for yourself instead of just following the herd. Yes. Yes. I, I think very well stated, Jennifer. And, you know, the conversation that I had with Dr. Bhakti, now his book, I can't remember exactly, but there's like over 300 references in that book. I recall I was on page 30 something and there were already almost 100 references. You know, when something is so well referenced, uh, I think that's a clue, too, that, you know, you want to pay attention to how well referenced is the writing. Absolutely. And my understanding is that he is an MD with a with a long history, like 20 years of background in infectious disease. Yep. He's written over 300 peer reviewed papers. Absolutely. I mean, so that's the kind of, you know, that book, Coronavirus, or Corona False Alarm, which is published by Chelsea Green, is a wonderful book that I recommend to people all the time. It's not the easiest read. You know, it's not as easy as sitting down and watching Simpsons reruns. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but it's a wonderful thing to read. And you'll you'll learn so much from it. And then whatever, you know, when things, another thing to pay attention to is when something makes you angry. So mm. if you read something that really contradicts what you believe, mm -hmm. instead of dismissing it or throwing the book across the room, which we've all wanted to do from time to time, mm -hmm. think about why you're having such an emotional response and then take that emotion, take that anger and put it to good use by doing some of the homework yourself. And maybe when you do, you'll find out that something he wrote wasn't quite right or doesn't dovetail with your understanding after you've done more research. But chances are what you're going to find is that the reason why it triggered you is because it was cognitive dissonance. It went against your belief system. And mm -hmm. that actually is going to help you grow and have, you know, and, and learn something new. And if I may give you a specific example. Please, yes. So after my oldest daughter was born, and she's, I'm going to date myself here, but she's, <laughs> she recently turned 21. Um, I was, I got Mothering Magazine in the mail, and it was, um, it's no longer in print, unfortunately, but um, it was a, an alternative parenting magazine that, you know, came, I think, once every uh, two months. And I remember mm -hmm. feeling like a good friend had just come in the mail, and I would sit down and read it from cover to cover. And in one of the articles, I read about the problems of prenatal ultrasound and the possible dangers of prenatal ultrasound. And mm -hmm. I felt my pulse quicken. Mm -hmm. And I was and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. That was literally my first thought was that's ridiculous. I had two ultrasounds. What's wrong with that? Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that was the red flag for me. The, the fact that I was so dismissive and I'm always trying so hard to be open minded and to be receptive to new information. And you know, I, I live by Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Oh, say and that I think, again. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's right. 
A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, Mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And when you have new information, you change your mind about things. And I will be the first to admit when I say something that isn't correct and I learn something new. And so, but that was before, you know, here I am reading Mothering and I'm a, I'm a, a new mom and I'm, I've got this beautiful baby and I know that she's perfect and I know I never would have done anything to harm her. And, and, and here I read this article that's talking about the, the problems with prenatal ultrasound and I, I didn't want to know because then it made me think, oh gosh, have I done something wrong? And, and that was the beginning. That was the trigger point. Um, for me doing a tremendous amount of research about prenatal ultrasound. And sure enough, Janine, we should not be giving women ultrasounds. We should not be exposing fetuses to ultrasound. And unfortunately, you know, over 98%, the last time I looked this up, of American women are getting at least one, but more likely to between three and something like 17 ultrasounds in one pregnancy. Oh dear. And what's the problem? Well, 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 let me explain a little bit of the motivation Mm -hmm. first, because, you know, if you give a woman an ultrasound at every prenatal appointment, you can charge more. Um, Mm. You get reimbursed at a higher rate from the insurance companies. So, you know, there's a huge financial incentive to do that. and, And there's this absolute naivete on the part of doctors who say, oh, it's nothing. It's just a pretty picture. Don't you want to see your baby? Mm-hmm. And of course, if somebody says to you, don't you want to see your baby? You're going to say, well, like, of course yeah. I want to see my baby. But you know, wombs do not come with a view. And there, it turns out when you look and you do a deep dive into the scientific literature, there's actually no proven benefit of prenatal ultrasound. So a healthy mm-hmm. person, a healthy woman who's having a baby needs exactly zero ultrasounds. We had much better outcomes before we ever did ultrasounds. And so first of all, they're not necessary. But second of all, which is much more important is that they are possibly harmful. And we now we we have Mm -hmm. several ideas about the mechanisms, but prenatal ultrasounds have been associated with cognitive disorders, including ADHD and autism. And Considering that we have such an epidemic of severe Mm. cognitive decline among children, severe autism, anything that could potentially be contributing to brain damage in our children is something that we need to avoid. Mm -hmm. So I had two prenatal ultrasounds with my first child. And when you know better, you do better. I I had three other children, all of whom were born outside of the hospital. So I had three home births and Mm -hmm. I did not do a single ultrasound with any of them. And let me just say, if you're going to choose to get an abortion, there is a benefit to prenatal ultrasound. So if you know that if you had a fetus that had, you know, that had Down syndrome or that had other problems that were diagnosed on an ultrasound and you know that you would terminate that pregnancy, then there is a benefit. Benefit, I kind of need to put in quotation marks, but there is a benefit mm-hmm. to getting an ultrasound because then you could terminate the pregnancy. And, you know, that, that has happened to many people that I know. I knew as a mom that I would not terminate one of those pregnancies. And Mm -hmm. not that I want to get into a conversation about abortion, but Mm -hmm. it just, that was not part of something that I was willing to do because I had planned pregnancies. And I, I knew that anything that would happen with my child after it was born, that I was ready 
to take that on. Mm -hmm. And so okay. there was absolutely no reason for me to get any ultrasounds. And in fact, I didn't. And I had much, you know, much better prenatal care and much more positive birthing experiences. And one of the reasons why was actually because I didn't do the ultrasounds in the, in my first pregnancy, the doctor at the end of the pregnancy said, well, you're measuring small. And I said, well, I'm, I finally feel better. I've been nauseous for six months. I've been bicycling and running every day. Could it have something to do with me doing exercise? And she said, no, absolutely not. You might have intrauterine growth retardation. And that was the <laughs> word she used, retardation, which of course, you know, I absolutely, the last thing you want to hear when you're having a baby is that word. And they don't right. use that word anymore. It's a very rude and awful thing to say. They now say growth restriction. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, you have to have an emergency ultrasound right now. And you know, I, of course, said, okay. And the, the ultrasound tech, I remember her being very dismissive and basically saying, oh, your baby's perfect. This is ridiculous. You know, like, and thank goodness she said that because she really reassured us, but the tremendous amount of stress that that caused us. And, you know, of course the baby was born perfectly healthy with a perfect birth weight and there was no need for that. And there was no need for that much stress. And that was so iatrogenic. It was doctor induced. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening with ultrasounds, even if let's say the association with cognitive delays is, is at some point disproven. I mean, the science is still very active and we don't know, but we have seen quite a bit. If you look into it, it's pretty fascinating, but let's just say that that's not true for just for argument's sake for now. Mm -hmm. okay. The other problem is that when you, when you start looking for problems, you find them and they're mm. often not problems. And then it causes a cascade of intervention, which is one of the reasons why we have such bad health outcomes among our moms and babies in America is because we overdo it. We over treat, over diagnose. And so often an ultrasound will find a problem that is not there and then treat a problem that does not exist. And in treating the problem, cause another problem. So many, many times, and I'm sure that the people listening can be nodding their heads because it happened to them. You will be told that they have to induce your labor right away because of the ultrasound, because the ultrasound showed that the baby was measuring too big. And then they will induce the labor. It ends up ending up in a cesarean birth, an abdominal birth, which is very suboptimal way for a baby. Mm -hmm. A human baby should be born via a human vagina, not via the abdomen. Right. And, you know, and then the baby is like six pounds, seven pounds, eight pounds, total normal birth weight. And that happens so often. And when you look at the science, um, you can see that prenatal ultrasound leads to over intervention, which can lead to a whole cascade of problems. And that's another reason to avoid them whenever you can. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now that is something I didn't know. Um, thank you for that. Uh, you know, the other thing is that when, when you, uh, so uh, just coming back to today, today's issues, there are so many thousands of well-respected doctors, uh, medical doctors, scientists, researchers who are questioning the mainstream, we'll call it the mainstream narrative of what's going on right now. And I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen that in my lifetime where so many people are standing up and saying something's wrong here. And to me, I would think everyone would want to go, hmm, maybe I should question this. Maybe, maybe there's something here. If all of these, all of these well-respected people are, are standing up and saying, we need to look at this. This isn't right. They're not all quacks. They're not all quote unquote conspiracy theorists. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, that's an exciting thing to see more people coming forward. And I think that those people have always been there. It's just that they're feeling a little bit more empowered to, to speak up, you know. Um, and for me, the proof a little bit is in the pudding. Like if mm -hmm. I, when I see a family and meet a family where the children are so healthy and glowing and happy and make eye contact and are polite and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, thriving, mm -hmm. I always want to know what's happening to that family. Like, what are they doing so that I can learn to do better and to, you know, and to emulate them. And so I think, you know, I mean, it's incredible to me. My, my daughter goes to school in New York City, and we had a parent, um, you know, like the parent orientation her first year of college, and there was, you know, a doctor there, these mainstream parents who are doctors, and they are not glowing with good health. They, you know, this cardiologist who was really obese, and there's a lot of reasons for obesity. I'm not trying to fat shame anybody, but I remember thinking, like, this poor man, his heart is under so much stress. How can you take your advice, mm. <laughs> your medical advice, how could you put the health of your heart, this one organ that's so important in your body, in the hands of someone who is so clearly and obviously unhealthy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I, I definitely take that into consideration when, when I'm uh, looking for a new healthcare provider. Is, you know, are, do they, are they walking their talk? Yes. And, and, and how do you feel, you know, are they listening to you? Cause I, I truly think that the best healthcare providers are the ones that understand that it's a partnership. It's not a dictatorship. Yes, so, absolutely. you know, good health is happens in partnership and in dialogue with each other and that you know your body better than anyone. And they hopefully know the science and they know their field and they don't impose that on you, but they help be, they are a team member and they help you to understand you know, what the best way forward would be. And they also respect you and respect your decisions to do things the way that you feel will be best. And earlier you mentioned my co-author, Paul Thomas. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I admire and respect so much about him is that he believes in good health and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, oh, absolutely do not find out about X, Y, or Z, you know, whether that's chiropractic care or acupuncture or herbal remedies, which some people think, oh my God, you shouldn't, you should never try that. And what he says is if it, if it works for you, it works. So right. even if it's the placebo effect, if something mm -hmm. you choose to do heals you or your child, that's a legitimate thing. It's always reasonable to try. And I appreciate his open-mindedness so much. And I think that the best doctors are the ones who remain open-minded and remain curious and listen to their patients. I think that's really important. They're not God. They're not, uh, they're peers. You know, they just have training in a field that you don't know much about. Um, exactly. Although you know your body or you know your right. children better than anybody. So in some way, you know, you walk into the doctor's office and you assume the doctor is the expert, but you're always the, the expert on your own health. And you also have to live with the consequences of your decision. So, <laughs> right. you know, if you choose not to get chemotherapy and that ends badly, that's ending badly for you, not your doctor, you know, so you know, doctors will try to shame you. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of healthcare professionals do this. I've had that experience also with midwives, which is which is too bad. But they'll try to to shame you by saying, you know, 
if you don't listen to me, then your baby will die. I mean, I've had people say that to me before, which is such a horrible thing to say. And they're doing it because they truly care about your child. But the truth is, is that if your baby dies, that's on you and you live with that grief for the rest of your life. Your doctor's not even going to remember your last name. Right. You know, they're, they've moved on to the next person. And so the buck always has to stop with you when it comes to your health. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important point. So everybody see, well, not everybody, but so many people I read, you know, oh, well, when the vac, okay, talking about today again, when the vaccine comes, you know, that's going to solve everything. And I'm like, why do you think that's going to solve everything? Um, <laughs> how about boosting your immune function? Because coronaviruses have been here forever. I mean, you know, this isn't the first coronavirus on the planet, right? And we get through it. We catch a cold, we get the flu, whatever. We do do what we have to do. We get through it. We build immunity and and we move on. This is telling me that so many people have weak immune functions that that's really because of all the comorbidities, you know, if there's so much chronic illness. Uh, I think people are just really susceptible right now to, I don't know, just about any bug that comes along, virus, bacteria, whatever, that people just aren't healthy. That's very true. It's very sad, too. I mean, it's very sad that the state of our health, human health is so poor for so many people, even, even young people. I mean, even people in their 20s and early 30s who should be in their prime of their health who are suffering from chronic fatigue and bowel problems and, you know, terrible skin rashes and gut dysbiosis. I mean, it's, it's, it's very worrisome. But your question is, uh, is your question, is, is the coronavirus vaccine going to save us all? Or, or why are people saying and thinking that the coronavirus vaccine is going to save us all? Well, I mean, I, yeah, that's a good question. What is my question? I'm not sure. But it seems to me that before everybody was, you know, hydrochloroquine, ivermectin, some of these things, you know, they don't do anything now. There's becoming a larger consensus that these are things, zinc, vitamin D, you know, they're all things that you can do to protect yourself. Or if you do get it, that will lessen your symptoms and you'll move through it easier. Um, you know, it's like, why aren't those things being promoted more instead of you have to wait for the vaccine and then everything's going to be better? Yeah. I mean, I think there's some real, it's not a rhetorical question. I think there's some real answers to that. You know, one of them is that there's, there's no money in healthy people. And if we had, if we had early on talked about effective treatments and found out that those treatments actually really worked, right, if they, mm-hmm. if they did, then we couldn't have gotten an emergency use permit to get these vaccines fast-tracked mm-hmm. <laughs> and out to the market. And unfortunately, we're talking about multi-billion dollar industries, and, which is not to say that the people working in them don't have the best intentions, but the clear profit motive is very disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one reason. And the other reason is, you know, it, it's the same reason why you never see billboards saying, breastfeed your baby. You know, you you never hear the doctors promoting breastfeeding, and there are over really thousand. No, there are over a thousand peer-reviewed articles. I mean, probably more closer to two thousand now, that show that breastfeeding is the single most important thing you can do to ensure your baby's immediate and lifelong good health. I mean, 
you know, continued and exclusive breastfeeding is associated with so many good outcomes, but it's breasts are bad for business. Um, you walk into a doctor's office in America and you see branded formula. You're given coupons when you go to the obstetrician at this, you know, you're just six weeks pregnant and they give you a little goodie bag to say congratulations for your pregnancy. And inside that goodie bag is actually branded formula and coupons to buy more. And, you know, in, in every hospital in America, the, the nurses are actually pushing formula instead, except for in the baby-friendly hospitals when it has a baby-friendly designation. And there are people who will, will, will shout from the rooftops that telling moms that they need support to meet their breastfeeding goals is somehow anti-feminist. I mean, <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I always, I always just assumed breastfeeding is best. I mean, that's, I can't yeah. believe that they're actually trying to get women to use formula instead of breastfeeding. I mean, I can see if you're having problems. But no, only but, then. Yeah, but, it, but no, but even if you're having problems, there are alternatives. I mean, mm. the thing is, there are women across the country who are who overproduce and they have freezers full of healthy, wonderful breast milk that oh. they're just happy to share. And you can also make your own formula. You do not need to use a desiccated, powdered product that is full of toxins, pesticides, herbicides, glyphosate, mm. you know, that's the main mm. ingredient is corn syrup solids uh -oh. because yep. corn is subsidized in the United States. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's incredible to me and it's discouraging and dispiriting that, you know, it just, anyway, that that's an example, the way that doctors and you don't see billboards promoting breastfeeding and People, women who can't breastfeed or who aren't able to meet their breastfeeding goals often feel like their breasts don't work when, again, it's a systems failure, but there's no money behind it. There's a huge amount of money behind selling formula. There's a huge amount of money, unfortunately, behind all the pharmaceuticals, including, you know, opioids. And unfortunately, there's a huge amount of money behind selling vaccines. So, you know, we don't promote eating healthy, organic food fresh from the earth as close to the natural state as possible because nobody cares about the bottom line of small organic farmers in the United States. But we do promote very aggressively putting someone on 13 different medications because of the profit motive behind it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a question of following the money, Janine. And when you follow the money, you realize that many of the recommendations that we're giving are just the wrong ones. And the people who are open-minded and are critical thinkers and don't do any of that have these wonderfully healthy families. And if every family were like them, we would be putting so many for-profit corporations out of business tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the health of our country would turn around and so many people would need to find new jobs, which would be a hallelujah moment. That's what we would like. But, you know, we have a system that tries to suppress that information very actively. It's very disturbing. Um, but the good news is, is that you can be a critical thinker. You can change the system. You can have your own microcosm of health and well-being and you can simply say no to the things that aren't working and embrace the things that are. And if you turn off the TV and the radio and you find people who are like-minded and part of your tribe, you know, you can be flourishing without all of this baloney. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think 
<clears throat> while you were talking, it I it came to me that you are an independent investigative journalist, and that is what people need to find: are independent investigative journalists who aren't being paid by any, you know, they don't they're not beholden to anyone. People like yourself. Um, I like reading Jeremy Hammond. Um, who are some other investigative journalists that you can think of that that people might want to look at? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're investigative journalists, but you know, I would I would spend time. People who are interested in vaccine questions, I think, should spend time looking at um, the National Vaccine Information Center, which is Barbara Lowe Fisher's organization, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everything that they publish is is very carefully referenced. It's very balanced and nuanced, and um, Children's Health Defense, which yes. is Robert F. Kennedy's organization, um, you know, they're also doing excellent work um, that is carefully referenced. And those are two of the places that I would start to be getting unbiased or less biased and more nuanced information about, especially about what's going on these days with masking, social distancing, coronavirus, overcounting, and, you know, everything related to this so-called pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like Robert Kennedy's site. The it's the Children's Health Defense Fund. Yeah, no, it's just it's called Children's Health Defense. Children's Health Defense, because there's a lot on there besides uh, vaccines. There's there's a lot of topics that are covered. He's kind of my new hero, actually. Yeah, he's refreshing. <laughs> he's really refreshingly outspoken, and he's weathered so many, um, you know he's been gaslit and targeted. Yeah. So many attacks and he does it with so much grace. And Mm -hmm. I mean, he is a force to be reckoned with. And I also really appreciate the work that Dell Bigtree is doing on Mm -hmm. the high wire. And, you know, all of these sites have been censored from Google, from Facebook, from Twitter. And in fact, whenever you see that something's being censored, I would go straight there. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, and that's what American readers do when CNN wrote an article and told people not to read the vaccine friendly plan, the book I co-wrote with Paul Thomas. And they said it was, you know, dangerous misinformation. And it was clear that the journalist had not even opened the book to take Mm -hmm. a look at. I mean, you just have to read the first two pages and you'll see. And when they did that, our publisher had to go back and reprint 5,000 copies because when you tell Americans what they're not allowed to read, what they're not allowed to talk about, what they're not allowed to see, luckily we still are a nation of independent pioneers and we have that American spirit. And so then they go right towards it. And that's what everybody should be doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the, the worst things about all of this is the censorship. It's, it's, to me, it's just absolutely outrageous. I agree. And it's it's very disappointing that it's coming from people who used to be champions of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And I know. That, yeah, it's okay to censor alternative voices. I mean, freedom of speech is so that people who you don't agree with have the right to be heard. It's not freedom of speech if it's only the people who are free or the ones who are saying, who are parroting what you already believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we really, I, I think, everyone needs to stand up for freedom of speech, that this censorship is, is outrageous. And, you know, you may, you may not think much of it as long as you're not being censored. But uh, as soon as it comes to you and something that you are believe strongly in, and you start being censored, you know, where does it stop? 
it's exactly it's so important and it's interesting because earlier and maybe this could be my last point but um earlier you talked about you know consensus and how more doctors and more people are standing up and you know that's all well and good and it's wonderful that there are people who are working hard to open people's hearts and minds but but science doesn't happen by consensus um often you know the most unpopular ideas the idea that everybody dismisses and the scientific consensus in quotation marks says is absolutely wrong turns out to to be in fact the right idea mm-hmm. so often when we're in a moment in history we don't we're not able to see outside we're not able to kind of project ourselves into the future and look back but our most important scientific advances have have taken place because there's been one visionary or one pioneer. So as much as I appreciate these alternative voices, and I certainly do, and it's true that those voices are growing, that the crowd is, you know, coming together, it doesn't invalidate the idea that, you know, so one person could be saying something that everyone is dismissing, and that one person ends up in the long run being right. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I'll tell you what I do when I get some information that I, you know, it sounds like there's something there, but I'm not sure I don't have the facts. I just kind of file it in my brain somewhere until I get more facts. I don't dismiss it. I don't throw it out, but I I keep it so that, you know, as I have more facts saying yay or nay, then I can make a decision. But until then, I'm not, I'm not dismissing it because uh, somebody else says that, you know, it's, it, it's conspiracy or whatever they want to call it. I appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm deeply disturbed by this sort of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. JP Sears, who's a comedian who I really appreciate so much. Um, you know, he said we should cancel, cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's right, you know, so keeping what you're talking about, Janine, is just being open-minded to, to, to information that, doesn't jive with you, that doesn't dovetail with your pre-existing beliefs. And as long as you, you don't have to even look at it now, but as long as you say, okay, I hear that this person believes this, or I've read this now, and I'm just going to keep my mind open. And it's, it's very hard, but I think it was Groucho Marx who said, you know, if you, if you open your mind, your brain won't fall out. (laughs) And that's an important thing to say, you know, you, you can be open-minded and it's no one is going to get hurt just because you are receptive to new ideas. Right. Right. And remember at one point we thought the earth was flat and that was fact, (laughs) right? We thought that was fact. We thought that was true. Yes. So Jennifer, this has been wonderful. How can people uh, connect with you, learn more about your work, get your books? Um, my books are available wherever books are sold. If you are able to go to a brick and mortar bookstore, that's my first recommendation. Um, and I recommend that people start with your baby, your way, taking charge of your pregnancy, childbirth and parenting decisions for a happier, healthier family, or either of the two books that I co-wrote with Paul Thomas, the vaccine friendly plan or the addiction spectrum. If anyone is in your life is, or you are dealing or with addiction issues, um, and then the best place for information is my website, which is www.jennifermargulis.net. And at that website, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's an email list that I almost never send emails to, but I'm trying to be better about that. I just don't like spam. So I'm very, mm-hmm. I, I use it sparingly. So if you do sign up, you won't 
you, you won't have to worry about hearing from me too often. In fact, my mistake is not writing to my list often enough. And I enjoy your emails, by the way. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I think, <laughs> yes, I remember because we've been trying to have this conversation for more than six months. I'm glad <laughs> we finally made it happen. <laughs> I am too. I am too. I, I knew it would be a, a good, interesting, fun conversation. So I kept at it. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jennifer, and take care. Thank you so much, Jennifer Margulis, for your dedication to your work. You truly, truly are an inspiration. The podcast website is realjanine.com. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you prefer using YouTube, I have video slideshows of my conversations, although I might have to start using BitChute. We'll see. Just search on Keeping It Real with Janine. Do you know someone who would enjoy this informative conversation with Jennifer Margulis? I'm sure you do. So please share with as many as possible. We'd all appreciate it. And remember, keep an open mind. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.